According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm not hearing myself. Am I on? I'm not on. Okay. I heard a pop when I was walking up to the uh, pulpit. Must be the effect I have on people. Maybe we just lost our amplifier. All right. Well, I will just speak loudly, and uh, we'll see what else happens. Join me, if you would, in Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. I do want to finish this chapter today, and we'll see how it goes. Uh, verses 22 through 34, as we see the treaty. Abimelech and Phicol initiate a peace treaty with Abraham. They come to him, and they want him to swear an oath, and he swears it. But then there's a problem. Some of their men are causing issues, and so Abraham takes it to his uh, uh counterparts in this treaty, and he holds them accountable for what are they going to do about their men that are uh, stealing his, uh, his well, stealing his, uh, his water. So we'll deal with this, and, and then also start to see some of the history and geography, some of the background on the Philistine people, uh, trying to tie together some loose ends here this morning before we move on into chapter 22 when we get to the sacrifice of Isaac. It seems we've had all these chapters before, and now he finds his only begotten son. So we'll, we'll be dealing with that as we get into chapter 22. Before we start, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father in his faithfulness. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you so thankful. Thankful for your faithfulness. Thankful for your grace. Thank you for providing a lampstand where the word of God goes forth, line upon line and precept upon precept. And, and the darker our nation gets, Father, the more we need your truth. I thank you for this lampstand and the light that shines in a dark place. Father, we call upon your faithfulness to bless our study today. Open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts. Might we with humility receive the word implanted that is able to save our souls. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we deal with at that time, and I mentioned this a week ago, it came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, was it a week ago? It was a week ago. Okay, I'm trying to remember. We've had a couple of missionary reports in recent weeks, but I was preaching last week, and it was a week ago that we were looking at this. All right, Abimelech and Phicol. This is the king, and this is the military commander of the uh, Philistine advance party that is now occupying Gerar. Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity. But according to the kindness that I have shown you, you shall show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear it. All right, so those three verses, 22, 23, 24, they say quite a bit. And I just also realized I need to start this, or the desk will not see my screen. There we go. Some of the little magic that works where the screen gets broadcast across on the stream. All right. 
So these are the verses we're looking at. And these verses by themselves are, are a great unit and, and stand as a unit. We, we need to study the details here. And then we get to the complaint. We get to the problem in verse 25. You know, a, a covenant is wonderful so long as both parties keep it. But how long does it take for something to break down? You entered into a covenant. You entered into a contract. You entered into a, a marriage. You entered into whatever it is you entered into. And then here comes the first problem. What, how do you deal with it? When the first problem hits, does that mean you just throw it away and walk away and say, well, we tried? Or what do we do when we have a problem uh, in, uh, in this covenant? And they're going to work it out. And they're going to work it out as unto the Lord because Abimelech and Abraham are, are for the first time here, Abraham and Abimelech are both in fellowship. And uh, we've seen other examples where Abraham was lying and he was out of fellowship and he was carnal and uh, he didn't think that Abimelech had any fear of the Lord. And uh, wasn't he surprised when he found out that Abimelech was a believer, positive to Bible doctrine and, uh, and these issues here. So uh, we have the context here at that time. It is the weaning of Isaac and the banishment of Ishmael. That those events had a significance that was not lost on Abraham's Philistine neighbors. You know, think about what you might do if your neighbor, uh, you know, has, a, has an infant, a newborn, that, uh, that he weans, and he's having a huge celebration, a great feast, that uh, this son is now weaned, and, and uh, you're taking part. Do you understand the, the, con the significance of that? And do you understand the, um, the covenant basis upon which God is blessing the Jewish people? It, um, if we're fuzzy on it, Abimelech was not. He was absolutely on target when he said, God is with you in all that you do. Elohim is with you in all that you do. And that had to be absolutely staggering because as a Gentile, he is without Christ, without hope, without a God in this world. The gods of the Philistines were not gods. The gods of the Philistines, like Dagon and some of the other uh, fish gods that they had, um, they were obviously demons, fallen angels, false gods. Only the God of Israel is the one true God, creator of heaven and earth, the Elohim, God of Israel, that we understand. And Abimelech wants to attach himself. Abimelech wants to put himself, his family, and his posterity in a right relationship with the covenant nation, the nation that is in a covenant relationship with Elohim. So when he says, God is with you in all that you do, that, that's a staggering confession, particularly since he knows that Abraham's a liar. He knows that he's already been misled. He knows that Abraham wasn't selected to be a prophet because he was always faithful and did everything right and couldn't make any mistakes. That Elohim is a God of grace who selected Abraham on a grace basis, who selected the seed of Abraham on a grace basis, who recognized that this weaned child was born to a man 100 years old with his wife 90 years old and said, there's something different here. I want to learn more about it. And, and wanting to put himself in a place of blessing. Remember, this is what the Abrahamic covenant's all about. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. So swear to me by Elohim that you will not deal falsely with me. This is a, a, a sovereign oath. This is where you invoke the name of God to bear witness to your testimony. And that used to mean something. Our culture's lost it. But you used to put your hand on a Bible and raise your hand and swear, so help me God. And you were invoking deity so that if you were faithless, you were actually welcoming to be cast down. You were welcoming for the deity to hold you accountable. At least that's the, uh, the origins of swearing an oath 
and the invocation of God as a witness. So swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me. Promise me you won't lie to me. And he's asking a liar to, to not lie again, right? And, and, you know, think about it. Think, uh, you know, think about how, I mean, would we do such a thing without faith, without the leading of the Lord? Would we, you know, they say once bitten, twice shy. You, 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 when you've been lied to once, when you've been betrayed once, when um, maybe you're, you're interested in a girl and you're, you're dating and whatever, but then she cheats on you while you're still dating, and then you think, well, it'll, it'll be different once we get married. And you think, wait a minute. She's already demonstrated uh, her faithlessness. She's already, I, mean, I think we got issues here. Uh, is this the kind of person I'm going to expect to be faithful to our marriage vows? And uh, so when I read about Abimelech saying, swear to me that you will not deal falsely with me, knowing what happened just a, a chapter earlier, this paints a marvelous picture of faith. This is to Abimelech's credit. This is a, a testimony to his uh, familiarity with Elohim. And um, perhaps in the meantime, he's learned some things about the covenant relationship that Abraham has. He had to have been pondering, this liar is going to pray for me and I'm going to be healed? You know, Yahweh said, or Elohim said that he was a prophet of mine and he will pray for you and you'll be healed? And so, man, this is a prophet of a God that forgives, a God that is a God of grace that works through imperfect agents and, and restores them to fellowship. I think that had to be a, a, an absolute um, witness to, to Abimelech himself. And, and maybe we can consider that also in our own witness and testimony, that you know, our, if our friends and neighbors think that we're Christians because we never make mistakes, or we're goody-two-shoes, or we're, we're, you know, we're legalists about being good people and not doing the bad things that they do, we can just say, look, we're sinners saved by grace, and our God is a God of forgiveness, and just lay it out there. And that can be a point of, uh, of witness, that, that an unbeliever may look at that and say, oh, maybe, maybe there is some hope for me. All right. The idea of entering into a covenant, entering into a treaty, first of all, he's not even asking for a covenant, he's just asking for a promise, an oath to be faithful, an oath to be true. And that's good enough for him. That, and, and he specifically references chesed, the blessed loving kindness, that it's, it's a, a fascinating study anytime you look at chesed in the Hebrew Old Testament. And he's got a frame of reference for that. He says, I am showing grace to you. You can show grace to me, and it's a win-win. It's absolutely a win-win, but you've got to swear that you will not deal falsely with me. And so Abraham said, I swear. Last week we talked, uh, talked about some of the other international treaties and summits Abraham was involved with. Kings, he spoke to multiple kings in his lifetime. He was a great lord as far as a uh, nomadic uh, Bedouin lord would be concerned. His wealth was off the charts. His uh, armed men were very skilled, even uh, to the point where they could defeat five kings in a war. It's uh, staggering what Abraham was able to accomplish and how humble he was. If he wasn't so humble, you'd think a, a guy with that skill set and those kind of soldiers just go conquer the land that, that God said was his. But he waited by faith, and he lived as an alien, waiting for God to fulfill the promises, and he died in faith without receiving the kingdom that God had promised. It's a, it's a staggering testimony to Abraham's faith, faith in, uh, in these things. But as God's covenant steward, the patriarch of the covenant steward nation, Abraham's covenant engagements with Gentiles requires careful study. 
And, and maybe the best thing we can do with this careful study is recognize that that was then and we're not them. Okay? We are not there. And anything that we want to study with respect to geopolitics or world affairs or things of that nature, we have to take a step back and remind ourselves we are not the covenant nation on this earth. And furthermore, the covenant nation on this earth that is the covenant nation on this earth is presently under judgment. That God has set them aside momentarily, presently, not forever, but presently they're under judgment until he returns them to the land in faith, right? Which we understand to be the tribulation and the second advent and the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so until the church is removed, God is not resuming his plans for Israel. And this is where, again, I, I pull this, church, uh, this chart up as frequently as I can to remind ourselves that we're right here in the church and we are not Israel. But God is not done with Israel. Once the church is removed, God will resume his program for Israel. Are we clear on that? The rapture of the church takes, the, takes all of us to glory. And then Israel resumes their stewardship duties and their functions as the covenant nation in this world. So those studies are well worth looking at. Okay, Understanding them for what they were historically in the Old Testament understanding them for what they will be like prophetically in the future. What will foreign affairs be like in the millennial kingdom? Well, pretty simple. Worship Jesus Christ or get your ring turned off. <laughs> okay? Uh, your king has to go once a year and bend the knee to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. And uh, it's going to be a different... Uh, they're not going to have the United Nations at that point. All right? But kings will go to Jerusalem and bend the knee to Jesus Christ. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of looking forward to that. It's going to be a nice uh, change, uh, certainly better than what's going on today with WEF and Davos and all these other things that the United Nations thinks they're, uh, they're in charge of. All right. Abimelech's discourse with Elohim reveals a doctrinal understanding of such things as righteousness, integrity and innocence, sin, prophetic prayer, his discourse with Abraham reveals a better understanding of chesed, loving kindness, than Abraham himself was exhibiting. He probably understood it more, but he wasn't living it. Uh, Abraham was falling short on the chesed department when he and Sarah were telling lies. And this is, this is fundamental. This is amazing. How does he have this? Where, where did he learn this? There was no Bible in those days. I mean, we're still 400 years before Moses. More than 400 years before Moses. There is no Bible for Abimelech to learn from. It's like the book of Job. What Bible did Job have? Put yourself back in a Gentile mindset before Israel was the steward. And uh, where did they learn these things? Abimelech came to realize that his land grant to Abraham was nothing compared to God's land grant to Abraham. And this is where we need to pick it up and start dealing with these things moving into the future. Because he... He was being generous back in chapter 20 when he said, choose whichever land you want, right? Do you remember that in Genesis 20 and verse 15? Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please, willing to give Abraham whatever plot of land he wanted to take so that Abraham would be local, that Abraham would be nearby, that he would keep always a proximity to this man of blessing and these people of blessing. So when he says, my land is before you, settle wherever you please. Now that's, as far as he knows, he's being very generous. But once he comes to learn about the Lord's land grant, what God had promised, 
Okay, doesn't that get a little problematic? When all of a sudden he wakes up and he says, man, I promised Abraham whatever land he wants, but it's his anyway. <laughs> okay, it's all his. God had promised him everything from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. That's, a, that's a, a, an even greater land territory than just a subdivision of Gerar. Anyway, it's worth uh, learning these things and doing the geography on it, doing the map work on it. And you can, you can use your Bible software to do it, or you can just watch the evening news. Because all of the... All of the news coverage right now in Gaza with Israel defending themselves against the Hamas terrorist attacks, it's in this exact territory that we're looking at here, uh, the, uh, the land of Gerar. Abimelech desired to place himself, his offspring, and his posterity in a right relationship to God through a chesed, loving-kindness relationship with God's people. And this is the kind of forward thinking that I think we all should learn from and, and uh, emulate. We can replicate. Ooh, something changed. Am I louder now? All right, thank you for that. I'll stop yelling. I'll, I'll dial it back a bit. And so, um, but for himself, his offspring, and his posterity in a right relationship to God through a chesed loving kindness relationship with God's people. Think about well, the impact we want to have. We want to glorify Jesus Christ in our lifetime, but do we, do we give any thought to who's following us? Do we give any thought to uh, establishing Austin Bible Church as a lampstand and as a ministry that will be here long after we're gone? That we're establishing a work here? What, what was the word that uh, Dan Hill used? He was talking about the idea of having a... What, what was that? A for, you wrote it down, and I can't remember the word. He used a word to speak of a legacy, to speak of something moving forward. And that's, that's my concern, too. That's Abimelech's concern. Myself, my children, my posterity. How much positive volition can we instill at the youngest of ages as we ground them in the truth of the Word of God? Now, despite this oath, a problem arose that had to be dealt with. And that's described here in verses 25 and 26. Abraham complained to Abimelech. He's not a whiner. It's not wrong to complain when, there is, when you've been injured, when you're under an oath, and uh, the other party to that oath is uh, not living up to it. Abraham, Because this isn't chesed. That's at work here. So Abraham complains to Abimelech because the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. That's not grace. Just taking something that's not yours? That's not chesed. That's not the loving kindness of, of the Lord when you seize something that belongs to somebody else. And so he complains. You are in violation of our, of our oath to be faithful, to not, uh, to not be faithless in our dealings. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. Fair enough. Okay. Um, he's not going to use that as an excuse. He's not using that as, well, I'm not going to do anything about it because now it is brought to his attention. And now on this day that it is brought to his attention, he has to deal with it, which means he has to go and find which servants did that and he needs to restore and he needs to make amends and he needs to make sure that he's not dealing falsely so that he does the grace thing in this grace relationship, the chesed thing in this chesed relationship. I should say chesed more since it's allergy season and got the built-in natural congestion already working on your behalf. 
So the chesed relationship that they have, this is the beautiful thing about it. Have you noticed? I'm sure you have. Grace wins every time. And the beautiful thing about Christian love and forgiveness and grace is it's a win-win. And it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so to extend grace when you've been wronged, think about how precious it is when, when you know, you were the, the party that was injured and, and then grace restores things. But when you have to extend that grace because you are the one that has been wronged, it's even greater. Okay, More blessed to give than to receive. So this problem arises. And on this occasion, Abraham takes the initiative and ratifies a covenant with Abimelech. So now he takes it a step beyond an oath. Okay, They started with the oath. Now he wants to take it another level. He wants to take it uh, even more intense. And now animals are going to die, right? Blood's going to be shed. An oath uh, is going to be ratified by means of covenant, uh, locking it in even with a greater degree of of seriousness. We also notice the initiative now is on Abraham's part. He's the one that's taking the leadership. He's the one that's instituting the procedure and leaving Abimelech with questions. What's this about? Why, Why are we doing this now? What's going on here? It's Abraham's initiative and Abimelech's response. This too, I think, is worth looking at as far as a study on Jew and Gentile dynamics in the dispensation of Israel and some of the the, uh, international dealings of, of what takes place here. So Abraham is taking the initiative and he's ratifying a covenant with Abimelech. He took sheep and oxen, gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. I think this is remarkable too if um, two parties are coming together and one party is actually paying both sides of it. So that they're, bo- the, the, like I say, animals are dying. But Abraham is supplying both sides. His sides and Abimelech's side. He says, alright, we're going we're gonna to do these sacrifices. Here, go ahead and use these sheep and goats and oxen. okay? And we're going to make this covenant. And then beyond that, there's more. We want to teach some doctrine while we're here. So Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Okay, I suspect these were too young. They're not suitable yet for sacrifice, but he sets these seven ewe lambs apart by themselves, and they're set aside. Okay? Anytime something is set aside, isn't that an attention getter? And you wonder, why is this set aside? Because the main action is here with, with these sacrifices and this covenant. But in addition to this action, we've got these other seven little ewe lambs set over here. What are those about? Well, glad you asked. Because uh, Abimelech asks. Abimelech says to Abraham, what do these seven ewe lambs mean? Which you have set by themselves. There, there is so much we can deal with this here. And it is interesting to think about. The idea of setting something apart. Okay? Sometimes we, 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 theologically, we call that sanctification. Something is set apart. Something is designated for a special purpose. And, and these seven lambs are going to be a reminder. They're going to be a memorial. They're going to be a, a testimony. So what do these seven ewe lambs mean, which you have set by themselves? And he said, this is Abraham now, you shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand so they may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore, he called the place Beersheba. I mean, look at how above and beyond he's going. And he wasn't even the guilty party. It was Abimelech's men that had seized the well. 
But now Abraham is funding both sides of the, of the covenant and he's throwing an extra seven ewe lambs in on top of it that uh, Abimelech can take home and do whatever he wants with them. They're his, but they're a reminder that, uh, and the number seven is significant because that's the number for oath and it's the number for, it's the Shabbat in, in Bathsheba. It's the, it's the Shabbat in Beersheba, Okay. The number seven and the number oath, it's the same word in Hebrew. So uh, you start looking at these things and it kind of gets kind of neat. So um, it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Seven lambs and the number seven. Therefore, he called that place Beersheba. Beer is the Hebrew word for well. That cracks me up. Okay, it's not beer like we think of beer, but it's the Hebrew word for well. And then Shabbat either oath or seven. So he called that place Beersheba because there the two of them took an oath. And so they made a covenant at Beersheba. And Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. All right, so we have the significance of this covenant. And this is going to be remembered for generations. This is going to be remembered, um, it's going to come up in chapter 26 when we're dealing with Isaac and the next Abimelech and the next Phicol. They're going to have dealings, and not, they won't be friendly dealings, but they're supposed to be because of this covenant. And that's, um, I'll save that for chapter 26. But we, we, uh, when we're making covenants with fellow human beings, uh, just be aware that they can lie and they can be broken, and, and uh, maybe in the next generation or the generation after that, that uh, they don't respect uh, what had been done by the generation before. All right. So while this chapter ends well, um, it does not bode well for some future chapters, as, as we will see. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree. So we have wells, we have trees, we have altars, we have fixed um, things that the patriarchs are leaving behind everywhere they go. And significance with all of them. A tamarisk tree at Beersheba. And there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. It becomes a religious center. It becomes it, I don't want to use the word religious. It becomes a worship center for God Most High, for the everlasting God. And these different names that are selected, I find that curious as well. How was Abraham relating to Melchizedek on the basis of God Most High? How is Abraham relating to uh, Abimelech? on the basis of Elohim, or on the basis of the everlasting God, the El Olam, as it comes in the Hebrew here. And then Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. We have the land of the Philistines mentioned both in chapter 32, and, uh, verse 32 and verse 34. And that gets our attention, because they weren't called Philistines in chapter 20, but they're called Philistines here in uh, in, uh, in this chapter. So how do we understand this? Is this an anachronism? How do we understand this? becomes a manuscript question or becomes a, um, yeah, a text criticism exercise and an and a, and a understanding of how the New Testament was written. At the time Moses is writing it, it is the land of the Philistines. Was it the land of Philistines when Abraham was there? Was Phicol a Philistine? Was Abimelech a Philistine? I think so, but they were forerunners of the later Philistines. And that's worth, uh, that's worth studying as well. So these are the loose ends I want to tie together before we, before we dismiss here today. Okay? So that's what we're dealing with. Despite the oath, the problem arised. It had to be dealt with. On this occasion, Abraham takes the initiative, ratifies the covenant. 
the well of Beersheba became, becomes a primary location where Abraham will sojourn for the majority of his remaining life. In the chapters that remain, okay, here's a clue. He dies in chapter 25, so we're getting close. Okay? He's 100 years old, he has the son, he's going to live 75 more years, but those years are going to fly by in these upcoming chapters, 22, 23, 24, 25. And, uh, and in those chapters, as we do our reading, we're going to see Abraham stays fairly local on the southern end of the promised land. He stays fairly local, he has no more trips to Egypt, he, he never again leaves the promised land, he does not go out to uh, he sends a servant out there to, to get a wife for Isaac, but he himself never again departs from the promised land. And the majority of his time is divided between two places, Hebron and Beersheba. These become dominant centers for Abraham's uh, personal dwelling. And uh, you can spot some of that in Genesis 22. Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. That's the epilogue to the sacrifice on Mount Moriah story, when he's willing to slay his son. He comes back with his son, and Beersheba is where he's going to return to after that event. In chapter 23, uh, Sarah dies. She dies while they're staying at Hebron, formerly known as Kiriath Arba in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So he's got a different life in front of him as a widow, widower. We'll deal with that when we get to that chapter. Some of these other details too, by the way. What in the world is a tamarisk tree? You ever heard of a tamarisk tree before? Okay. Well, you've got resources available in your software that can tell you about these various trees. So uh, let me show you how to get to some of those. I bookmarked one of them. The Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary had a great article, which I liked. In fact, it's got an article here on uh, trees and shrubs of the forest. Anyway, the, the Greek juniper, Lauren, Laura Stinius, the oak. We've seen several oaks already. Uh, at Shechem and at Hebron, the Oaks of Mora. Abraham was dwelling by the Oaks of Mora uh, outside of Hebron. So there's different oaks. Oleander, pine, the Aleppo pine, Jerusalem pine, poplar, storax. Where's the one I'm looking for there? There it is, tamarisk. I should have colored it green so I didn't lose my place. Got the scientific name there, the Latin name Tamarix pentandra, identified with the Hebrew acel, and uh, based on these scholars and their study. Here's the other thing. We're, t we're kind of, a lot of it is guesswork based upon trees that are currently there and trees that we think used to be there back in the day, okay? And um, usually you can come to a, a broad consensus sometimes there's there's dispute and different scholars will will hash things out but i think they're solid on this one and there doesn't seem to be much disagreement between these uh these tree people um anyway the hebrew eshel which which grows in sandy areas and may have been the source of the biblical manna really i thought god was the source of the biblical manna but this is what happens when you start reading um scientists Scholars describe manna as a sweet secretion of various insects, such as these guys, the Trabulina monifera. Now, why did they call this, this insect 
Tribulina manifera. Why did they give this insect a name that looks like manna? Manifera, the manna-bearing insect. The word manna may be derived from the Egyptian word menu, food, or mahu. Well, the Bible tells us where manna comes from. It comes from the question, what is it? They asked, what is it? And so Moses says, great, we're going to name this, what is it? And they're going to be fed by what is it for 40 years as they wander in the wilderness. And I don't think it was an insect secretion. I think it was the, the provision of God who supplied bread. And that's the, the, the testimony that Jesus delivered when he talked about the bread that came from the Father and, the, and then himself as the true bread that came from the Father. Uh, there's the contrast. And Jesus didn't come from an insect secretion. All right, so I don't think this manna came from an insect secretion either. I just, that's just me. Um, we can debate this at the potluck if you want. We're not, we will not be eating insect secretions. All right. But it is curious where the different Hebrew terms came from, the different Egyptian Arabic terms. Uh, the Arabs called it man al-samah, heavenly bread. Some modern scholars identify the manna as derived from lichen, lichen, or allied species of plants found in Arabia and Yemen. The tamarisk, it's mentioned here. In fact, this is the first use of tamarisk. It's mentioned in 1 Samuel 22 and 1 Samuel 31. Yeah, Saul was sitting there under a tamarisk tree with a spear in his hand, getting ready to kill David, just hating David and hating life. 1 Samuel 31 took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. All right. The tamarisk tree is a deciduous tree up to 20 feet in height with small feathery leaves. Deciduous. Loses its leaves in winter, right? Uh, up to 20 feet in height. Small feathery leaves that execrete uh, salt through special glands. Was the manna salty? It was, to- it was called sweet. It was called tasty, and, and it was described as almost uh, coriander-like in its fineness. Tamarisks have a, a high water requirement. It may cause desert water resources to dry up. That gets my attention. If tamarisk trees have a high water requirement and may cause desert water resources to dry up, and you just dug a well at this place and called this place Beersheba, do you want that well to dry up? What are you doing? And then you decide, you know what, I'm going to plant a water-sucking tamarisk tree right here. I think it's, a, again, it's a note of faith. I, you know, why did Abraham do that? I have questions. The Bible doesn't answer. The pink flowers are followed by minute seeds. The wood was used for construction and, and also used as charcoal. The bark was used for tanning in the leaves as fodder. All right, and now you know. I find that interesting. And now I've got more questions than I had before I read that article. I want to know, why that tree? Why not an oak tree? Why not a, a different kind of tree? Why, why the tamarisk? Then uh, we have the title, The Everlasting God. Let's look at that, The Everlasting God. He planted a tamarisk tree, and there he called on the name of Yahweh, See, he knew the name Yahweh. He wasn't waiting for Moses to discover the name Yahweh. Abraham knew the name Yahweh and been using it for years. He called on the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. 
the El Olam. That uh, Abraham's been around a long time, and he'll be around a little bit more. He's going to die. The tree will be around longer than him. But God's going to be around longer than him or the tree, calling upon the everlasting God as the witness, calling upon his name. My favorite El Olam reference I found was in this dictionary. This is the exhaustive dictionary of Bible names. My wife says, don't you have enough books? No. Because you can have a hundred different books and then find that I like this article from this one, I like this article from that one, I like this article from that one, and the, the more you have, the more you can choose from for your illustrations and for the things you're trying to learn. But I do like this exhaustive dictionary of Bible names for a lot of things. In, uh, and they're not long articles. But if you want to learn the difference between El and Elah and Eloah and Elohim, Elohe Yisrael, El Elyon, the Most High God, Possessor of Heaven and Earth, this is the name when Abraham and Melchizedek were having communion in Genesis 14, that he was a priest of God Most High. And now we got El Olam, the God of Eternity. The God of Eternity. And I don't know about you, but I love that name. That's, that's, uh, that's a name of, of glory. It's a name of permanence and a name of faithfulness. The fact that this is the God who put a plan of salvation into effect before anything else was even here. You have an eternal God with an eternal plan. And uh, the one who has promised eternal life. What kind of eternal life could he promise us if he himself was not eternal? Right? So think about how precious this is and what a blessing we have to, uh, to appreciate these things. And, and in some respects, in some respects, this is the very nature of, of infinity, the, na- the very nature of eternity that is written onto our hearts. I think being in God's image impresses this very concept, even as unbelievers, there is something in the image of God that speaks to eternity to every human being in the world. And that's, uh, that's a remarkable thing. So the God of eternity, King James translates it, the everlasting God, the God without a beginning, the God who will never cease to be, the God who will never grow old, the God to whom eternity is what present time is. Interesting thing to think about, because he is the I am. Everything, you know, we're, we're, the, we're the time creatures. We think about past, present, future. What is, how does God orient to everything outside of himself in a timeless, glorious way. That's right. Describes God as he who extends beyond our greatest vision of who we think God is. No matter how great our concept of God is, he is always greater. And so, yes, we we have our understanding, it increases, our understanding increases, but we never reach the limits where God is still not greater than our understanding, our grasp, our appreciation for who he is and what he is and all that he has provided for us. This is a glorious name. And and in part, this is, um, I don't know, this may be something that I (laughs) I may use on Saturday. I don't know. Um, I'm preaching a funeral on Saturday and I ask for your prayers on that. But the idea of eternity, when, um, especially when unbelievers are present, when Maybe the people you're preaching the funeral for, they're, they're not saved. Or you don't know. And, you, and so you're, you're, you're preaching a message and, 
talking about eternity with people that may not have a frame of reference for eternity. I think it's important that we have a uh, we have an approach that will address those issues. So, like I say, pray pray in that regard. All right. Anyway, there's the name El, El, uh, El Olam, and I do like the exhaustive dictionary of Bible names. Anytime you have something like this, and you have your own Bible software up and running, and you want to do a, a study on something, just right-click it and see what options are, are open for you, okay? Just, just take a look here at Tamarisk Tree, and, or Beersheba, or whatever it is you want to look at. Just right-click it, and then select your options over here, and you'll start to say, oh, look at this, Beersheba, that's a place. All right, and I have a, a fact book. I've got an atlas. I've got all of these resources over here. And, you know, these are my top five resources. Yours may be different based on what you, whatever you have in your library, whatever your resources happen to be. Your top five will be there. If nothing else, start with the, uh, if it's a place, start with the atlas. Do some map work. Look at the location. See it for where it is. And appreciate the fact that... Uh, there it is. There's Beersheba and there's Gerar. All right. So not too far away. Friendly neighbors. You want to be on good terms. The king of Gerar, the king of the Philistines, he wants to be in a right relationship with Abraham. You don't want to have uh, drones flying over or rockets firing over or wishing the death of uh, those people. Okay. <laughs> That's what's happening today. Are we aware of these things? Um, besides the, uh, the atlas, again, you can come back here again, right-click it, open up the fact book. Open up the fact book for whatever word you want to research, okay? It could be a, a person, a place, a thing, a term. They're all going to be in your fact book here. And this will kind of be your launching pad, pad for future studies. And you can get to your dictionaries from here, and you can get to your other resources from here. You find out that it's a territory of Judah. It's a town in the Negev associated with several biblical patriarchs. Find some of the other names, other spellings. It'll give you your key article. This key article comes from the Lexham Bible Dictionary, which is in every single one of our library con uh, collections. You have the Lexham Bible Dictionary in your Logos installation as a part of the Austin Bible Church installation. Gives you media, gives you maps, gives you pictures gives you key passages, other verses you can study, shows you how it's referred to in the Hebrew, how it's translated, the different Bible events that took place there, the different timeline events, your dictionaries, your journals, how much you want to study, sermons. Nobody has preached a sermon on Beersheba. That's crazy. Books from your library, other books that you might want to buy. Because Logos will never miss an opportunity to sell you more books. Say, look, these books have Beersheba articles, and you don't own these books. Spend more money. Places nearby, topics, guides, workflows, related studies, further reading. And if that's not enough for you, it'll send you to the Wikipedia page, <laughs> which is not always reliable, so be careful with that. Just watch out for some of those things there. All right. So he planted a tamarisk tree, and there he called on the name of the Lord, El Olam, the everlasting God. And Abram sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. 
It's going to be a headquarters for him. Like I say, along with Hebron, this is going to be one of the dominant places that he stays for the rest of his life. Which means he's going to be in proximity with Abimelech. He's going to be in proximity with Phicol. They're going to have future dealings with one another. Okay, The Bible doesn't detail those. But based upon where they are, we know for a fact it's going to happen. And, and just consider what a double blessing that is. A blessing for uh, Abimelech, clearly. For, for a Gentile dog to have the, the covenant nation right next door and to, to have a prophet on hand and to learn doctrine. But think about the blessing for Abraham. Because, you know, up until now, he's kind of been surrounded by uh, Sodomites and Egyptians and um, Shechemites and, you know, he came out of Ur of the Chaldees. He's, he's really been kind of roaming from place to place and not always with the friendliest of neighbors. Maybe the best he did was when he was kind of halfway between uh, two different places where he can kind of uh, stay isolated there. But now he's got a friendly neighbor. Now he's got a believer that's positive to doctrine. And they're in a covenant relationship one to another. I find that significant. The references here to the land of the Philistines and the, the title king of the Philistines. These, are, these, are, these jump out at us because we hadn't seen those before. The first usages... And then we stop and we say, oh, wait a minute, what's happening here? Because in chapter 20, it was just known as the land of Gerar. And we might have thought that Abimelech was the king of Gerar. In fact, he was called the king of Gerar. Do we, we need to remind ourselves here? Chapter 20, Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev, and he settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. And then we have the king of Gerar in verse 2. After Abraham lied and said of Sarah's wife, she's my sister, Abimelech is the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So how is he the king of Gerar in the land of Gerar? And then one chapter later, now he's the king of the Philistines in the land of the Philistines. What do we do with that? How do we reconcile that? Right? Because they do reconcile. It's not, not difficult to reconcile. But this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of simple thing that Bible skeptics and God-haters will make a big deal out of, and they'll point to that and they'll say, see, your Bible contradicts itself. He's the king of Gerar, and here he's the king of the Philistines. And, and, and so they, they doubt the Bible's accuracy. They also doubt the Bible's origin. And they say there must, have been a, there must have been a Gerar author, and there must have been a Philistine author, and they had these different stories, and those stories kind of got mashed together. But now we can, we can glimpse some of the, the JEDP hypothesis. We can kind of glimpse some of the original sources that made up this human book. Okay? Absolutely garbage. There's no issue in rephrasing them. No issue in having both names of refer to the same locality. Gerar is the city. Gerar is the territory. The Philistines are the new arrivals. They are a people group coming from somewhere else. And they're coming from somewhere else. There are aliens as they're arriving. And as more and more of them arrive, and they start to decide, you know what? We're not leaving. This is our place now. Let's give it a new name. And maybe some of the natives who fail to stop these new arrivals, they might have a problem with that. And they might want to say, no, this is our land. Well... Again, am I talking about the Bible or current events from the news? Right? This is the human experience that has been going on since time immemorial. It's the same land. It is not a conflict at all. 
we have uh, different studies on it. So here in chapter 20, it's the king of uh, Abimelech is the king of Gerar in the uh, land of, Ger- of Gerar. But then in, at the end of chapter 21, he returns to the land of the Philistines. And Abram sojourns in the land of the Philistines for many days. In chapter 26, it's a different Abimelech. I think it's the son or the grandson of today's Abimelech. But Isaac now has to deal with him. This is 60 years later. There's a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar. Again, you can still have both names. That's not a problem. Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Not a conflict at all. And uh, all of the stories there. Now, are these the same as the later Philistines? Where did these guys come from? Genesis 10 tells us they came from Cyprus. We have this table of nations. Remember the chapter that put everybody to sleep? Because it had all of the begats, it had all the sons of Noah and the sons of, of uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And you had all the, you had 70 different divisions of humanity. This stuff is incredible and it's detailed and it's, it's very important. But it is, I admit, tedious to read through. Okay? But in... Uh, of all the, the uh, you know, we got Cush, and we have all these other Hamites. But then we have Mizraim, that's Egypt, became the father of Ludim, and Anamim, and Lehabim, and the Naphtuhim, and the Pathrushim, and the Kazluhim. Now notice, it's from those Kazluhim is where the Philistines come from. And also the Kaphtorim. The Philistines are actually a hybrid of these last two a hybrid of the Kazluhim and the Kaphtorim. And they came from Crete. All right? So with an Egyptian origin, with a stopover in Crete, and now probably also with, a, with an influx of some Japhetic people groups. Because the sea peoples that were ravaging in that time frame, uh, many of them had a Greek uh, heritage. They were coming from the Minoan civilization of, uh, of ancient Greece. Anyway, in any event, that's our uh, random reference to the Philistines in Genesis 10. And it seems out of place. And it's, uh, it's a puzzle until you remember Moses wrote this. And when Moses is leading Israel out of Egypt, they had to avoid the land of the Philistines. And they could not go the, the route of the Philistines. Um, that was not their option for departing Egypt. So this is worth looking at. These early Philistines came from Cyprus and are evidently the forerunners of the more notorious Philistines, otherwise called the Sea Peoples in history, Philistines in the Bible, and, of course, legendary when it comes to Goliath and the Battle of David and Goliath and the other Philistines that were on hand in the time of the judges and the time of the, of the kingdom, the Philistines that King Saul had to deal with, the Philistines that, that took Samson prisoner. Lots of well-known Philistines throughout the rest of the Old Testament. The bulk of the Old Testament, from Exodus 13 all the way to Zechariah chapter 9, is full of Philistines. All right? And in fact, this is the title where when the Romans decided they want to insult Israel, they destroyed Jerusalem, they drove the Jewish people out of their own land, and then they renamed it. And they renamed it Palestine, which is a Latin... Uh, a Latin uh, bastardization of 
Philistine. Okay? So the Romans called it Palestine when they were expressing their dominion over the, the Jewish people. And what are we faced with today? Palestinians. Right. And then all of the argument about who owns this land. There's a good article on the Philistines in the Lexham Bible Dictionary. This is the last thing I think we need to look at, and then we can get a sneak peek at chapter 23 and get excited for next week. Philistines. In the Hebrew, it's plashtim. People who emigrated from southern Greece into the coastland of Canaan, enemies of the Hebrew people between the time of the conquest until the divided kingdom. So the time of the conquest, that's after the Exodus, the, the 40 years after wandering in the wilderness, then they cross into the land under Joshua, that's called the conquest, okay, 1400 BC. From 1400 BC until the, uh, the divided kingdom, after the death of Solomon when the kingdom was divided north and south, okay? So that's the time frame we're talking about, from basically 1400 BC to 400 BC. For a thousand years, these Philistines were a pain in the neck, okay? on the coast, on the territory, the boundaries of between Israel and, and Egypt. Now, from 1400, that's, that's like 600 years after Abraham. What, who's this Abimelech guy? Who, who are these people now in Gerar? Who are these early arrivals? That's why we call them early arrivals. The, the great migration waves came later, while Israel were slaves in Egypt. Genesis 10 lists the Philistines in the so-called Table of Nations. In, with the verse we just looked at there, NIV, or the NRSV changes the order, Kazluhim and Kaftorim. There's no need to do that. Uh, but they, they change the order, reconciling the verses with Jeremiah and with Amos, both of which say that the Philistines came via Kaftor. Again, is that a contradiction? No, it's a divergent detail that we harmonize and we reconcile without any problem. The, uh, both the Kazluhim and the Kaphtorim are in the lineage of the biblical Philistines. The textual experimentation with Genesis 10 is unnecessary and problematic. I agree. Leave the text the way it is in Genesis 10:14. Archaeologists have shown that the Philistines can be traced back to the Aegean. And uh, if you want research on that, a lot of it comes from their idolatry. A lot of it comes from their images or their idols. The Dagon, the fish god. You know, who's, um, I mean, a minotaur, that's scary, that's impressive, that's a, a beefy, uh, you know, body with a bull head. That's, uh, to me, that's an intimidating mythology. But a fish head? You know, on a human body? What's, how scary is a fish head supposed to be? But anyway, you can start tracking their idols, start tracking their imagery, and you can see the, uh, through the material culture that archaeology in, uh, uh, unveils, you can see the links. Anyway, Dothan and Dothan, people of the sea. Um, from there, they settled in Crete and for a time before carrying on to Canaan and attempting to invade Egypt. They were very problematic towards the Egyptians, kept expelling wave after wave, and, uh, and eventually they landed there in, on the coast of Israel in Philistia. The names of some prominent Philistines, such as Goliath and Achish, are not Semitic in origin. They're thought to be from the region of southern Greece. And so you start doing your etymological studies on where do these names come from. Even though the people seem to be Hamitic, their language seems to be Japhetic. How do we trace that? How do you end up with a Hamitic people with a Japhetic language? 
Or like the Canaanites, most of them were Hamitic people with Semitic languages. How does that happen? Uh, so yeah, the regions of southern Greece, most of the evidence points to the Anatolian coast and or the Aegean world as the homeland of various sea peoples. Some Philistine personal names and terms recorded in the Bible are related to the Luvian language of western Anatolia. That would even include, uh, the Luvian would be um, in a proximity there with Lydia in the Lydian region, western Turkey. But the evidence is far from car- uh, concrete. So they keep studying it and they keep digging and we'll keep learning more with upcoming generations. Archaeological data confirms the existence of Philistines in Palestine only as far back as the time of the judges. However, the Bible describes both Abraham and Isaac interacting with Philistines, the chapter we're looking at today. It is possible that some Philistines were already in Palestine, that the larger migration of Philistines came later into Palestine. It is also possible that Genesis' use of the term Philistines is anachronistic. And we have to accept that, right? So um, we, we oftentimes, if a, if a place gets renamed later on, an author from that time period will refer to that new name, even though it's an anachronistic use because it's not named that yet. Right? We can talk about Stephen F. Austin and he brought settlers, or his father Moses Austin, brought settlers, Anglo settlers from the United States, and they settled in Texas. Did they settle in Texas? Was it called Texas at that time? Okay. It's called Texas now. So we can call it Texas now. But it was called something else. Coahila y Tejas or whatever. It was the combined state of, of Mexico at that time. Okay. It's not wrong to use a later name for a king or a land or a territory. You know, you read the book of Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar comes and he captures Jehoiakim. You know what? He wasn't quite king yet. But he became king shortly after that, and it's not a problem to call him King Nebuchadnezzar. Lots of stuff like that. It's called anachronistic details. In piecing together the biblical, linguistic, and archaeological records, it seems probable that the Philistines and other so-called sea peoples originally came from the Mycenae region of southern Greece. While there may have been some Philistines in Palestine during the time of Abraham, obviously the ones we're looking at, the major influx came as three groups after the Trojan War in the mid-13th century B.C. Okay, yes, that's real. It's a real thing. Okay. I have a theory, and I can't prove it, but I'll close with this. Wouldn't it be interesting if the reason why Abimelech was leading a group of Philistines to depart their homeland and go to a new land What were they seeking? What were they fleeing? What were they looking for? Were these pilgrims looking to worship Elohim and freedom that they weren't free to do back in where Dagon held sway? Okay, we don't know. It may be this early group of settlers was actually positive to doctrine, born-again believers. And he was thrilled to be living in proximity with the covenant nation of Israel right from the beginning, right with the call of Abraham. And then sadly, in the upcoming centuries, here come more and more and more and more. You know, and just like our country, the pilgrims had their priorities, but what about the, the millions that came after them? Did they have the same pilgrim priorities that, the, that signed the Mayflower Compact? Obviously not. 
Anyway, it's just an idea, and I'm probably way off, but we'll find out when we get there. The fact is, with all of these guesses and estimates and probabilities and considerations, we are open for more information as more gets learned. We're not terrified of any archaeological discovery. We're willing to revise our understanding of, of finer points and finer details. But there is no basis to look at a supposed contradiction with the land of Gerar and the land of the Philistines and just think just out of nowhere that, oh, my Bible has problems and I can't trust any of it. Okay? That's the default mode of the skeptic. And Geisler talks about this. They will assume that everything in the Bible is false until you can prove something otherwise. And they, just, they, give the, they don't give any benefit of any doubt. They just assume it's religious, it's false. And then if archaeology manages to validate one thing or something, okay, we'll, we'll begrudgingly accept that because archaeology won't let us deny it. And that's where they are. All right. Well, more on that this afternoon, by the way. If uh, you're a part of our systematic theology class, we're dealing with, uh, with some of those issues in canonicity. So uh, next week, we'll come back and we'll get a start on chapter 22. And uh, after all these chapters waiting for Isaac to get born, uh, the first thing that needs to happen now is he needs to die. All right? And it's like you spend thousands and thousands of years preparing for the Christ to enter into the world. And he comes so that he can die. He's going to go to the cross and purchase our eternal life. Well, now here's Isaac as a picture of the Christ. And after all these years of waiting and after this final arrival and the celebration and the laughter and, okay, you have a son now. I promise to give you a son. Now go kill him. And that's what we'll deal with next week. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for fixing the technology and everything else. Father, thank you for blessing our desire to study and to grow and to learn a little here and a little there. Father, thank you for t designing the Word of God to be line upon line, precept upon precept, a little here, a little there. Father, it is a, a grace and a glory for us to have uh, to know a little bit more today than we knew yesterday. Thank you for the Scriptures. Thank you for the, the, the uh, power of your Word. We call upon that power for each one of us throughout the week. And especially, Father, I call upon that power this coming Saturday and the message you have for me to deliver. Uh, be faithful, Father, beyond anything we could ask or think. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.